Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Haunted Mountain by Robert Howard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Haunted Mountain by Robert Howard. The reason I despise this tarantulas, stinging lizards, and hydrophobia skunks is because they reminds me so much of Aunt Lavaca, which my uncle Jacob Grimes married in an absent-minded moment when he was old enough to know better. That there woman's voice plumb puts my teeth on age, and it has the same effect on my horse, Captain Kidd which don't generally shy at nothing less than a rattlesnake. So when she stuck her head out of her cabin as I was riding by and yelled, Brickin' Ridge! Captain Kidd jumped straight up in the air, then tried to buck me off. Stop tormentin' that poor animal and come here, Aunt Lavaca commanded, whilst I was fighting for my life against Captain Kidd's spine-twistin' sun-fishin'. I never see such a cruel, worthless, no good. She kept right on yapping away until I finally wore him down and reined up alongside the cabin stoop and said, What do you want, Aunt Lavaca? She gave me a scornful snort and put her hands on her hips and glared at me like I was something she didn't like the smell of. I want you should go get your Uncle Jacob and bring him home, she said at last. He's off on one of his idiotic prospecting sprees again. He snuck out before daylight with a bay mare and a packed mule. I wished I'd woke up and caught him. I'd have fixed him. If you hustle, you can catch him this side of Haunted Mountain Gap. You bring him back if you have to lasso him and tie him to his saddle. Old fool, off hunting gold when there's work to be did in the alfalfa fields. Says he ain't no farmer. Huh. I allow I'll make a farmer out of him yet. You get going. But I ain't got time to go chasing Uncle Jacob all over Haunted Mountain, I protested. I'm heading for the rodeo over to Chaud Ear. I'm going to win me a prize, bulldogging some steers. Bulldogging, she snapped. A fine occupation. Go on, you worthless loafer. I ain't going to stand here all day arguing with a big ninny like you be. Of all the good-for-nothing, trifling, lunk-headed. When Aunt Lavaca starts in like that, you might as well travel. She can talk steady for three days and nights without repeating herself, her voice getting louder and shriller all the time till it nigh splits a body's eardrums. She was still yelling at me as I rode up the trail toward Haunted Mountain Gap, and I could hear her long after I couldn't see her no more. 
Poor Uncle Jacob. He never had much luck prospecting, but trailing around through the mountains with a jackass is a lot better than listening to Aunt Lavaca. A jackass's voice is mild and soothing alongside of hers. Some hours later I was climbing the long rise that led up to the gap, and I realized I'd overtook the old coot when something went ping up the slope, and my hat flew off. I quickly reined Captain Kidd behind a clump of brush and looked up toward the gap and seen a pack mule's rear end sticking out of a cluster of boulders. "'You quit that shooting at me, Uncle Jacob!' I roared. "'You stay where you be!' his voice came back, sharp as a razor. "'I know Lavaki sent you after me, but I ain't going home. I'm on to something big at last, and I don't aim to be interfered with.' "'What you mean?' I demanded. "'Keep back, or I'll ventilate you,' he promised. "'I'm going for the lost haunted mine.' "'You've been hunting that thing for thirty years,' I snorted. "'This time I finds it,' he says. "'I bought a map off in a drunk max down to perdition. "'One of his ancestors was an engine which helped pile up the rocks "'to hide the mouth of the cave where it is.' "'Why didn't he go find it and get the gold?' I asked. "'He's scared of ghosts,' said Uncle Jacob. "'All Maxes is awful superstitious. "'This and a rather set and drink, nohow. "'They's millions in gold in that there mine. "'I'll shoot you before I'll go home. "'Now will you go on back peaceable, or will you throw in with me? "'I might need you in case the pack mule plays out.' "'I'll come with you,' I said, impressed. Maybe you have got something at that. Put up your Winchester. I'm coming. He emerged from his rocks, a skinny, leathery old cuss, and he said, What about Lavaki? If you don't come back with me, she'll follow us herself. She's that strong-minded. I'll leave a note for her, I said. Joe Hopkins always comes down through the gap once a week on his way to Chaudier. He's due through here today. I'll stick the note on a tree where he'll see it and take it to her. I had a pencil stub in my saddlebag, and I tore a piece of wrapping paper off in a can of tomatoes Uncle Jacob had in his pack, and I writ, Dear Aunt Lavaca, I am taking Uncle Jacob way up in the mountains. Don't try to foller us. It won't do no good. Gold is what I'm after. Breckenridge. I folded it and read on the outside. Dear Joe, please take this here note to Ms. Lavaca Grimes on the Chaud Ear Road. Then me and Uncle Jacob sought out for the higher ranges, and he started telling me all about the lost haunted mine again, like he'd already did about forty times before. Seems like they was once an old prospector which stumbled onto a cave about fifty years before then, which the walls was solid gold and nuggets all over the floor till a body couldn't walk, as big as mushmelons. But the Indians jumped him and run him out and he got lost and nearly starved in the desert and went crazy. When he come to a settlement and finally regained his mind, he tried to lead a party back to it, but never could find it. Uncle Jacob said the Indians had took rocks and brush, and 
hid the mouth of the cave so nobody could tell it was there. I asked him how he knowed the Indians done that, and he said it was common knowledge. Any fool ought to know that's just what they done. This here mine, says Uncle Jacob, is located in a hidden valley which lies away up amongst the high ranges. I ain't never seen it, and I thought I'd explored these mountains plenty. Ain't nobody more familiar with them than me except old Joshua Braxton. But it stands to reason that the cave is awful hard to find or somebody'd already found it. According to this here map, that lost valley must lie just beyond Apache Canyon. Ain't many white men knows where that is, even. We're headed there. We had left the gap far behind us and was moving along the slanting side of a sharp-angled crag whilst he was talking. As we passed it, we seen two figures with horses emerge from the other side, headed in the same direction we was. So our trails converged. Uncle Jacob glared and reached for his Winchester. "'Who's that?' he snarled. "'The big un's Bill Glanton,' I said. "'I never seen t'other'n.' "'And nobody else outside of a freak museum,' growled Uncle Jacob. This other fellow was a funny-looking little maverick with laced boots and a cork sun-helmet and big spectacles. He sawed his horse like he thought it was a rocking chair and held his reins like he was trying to fish with them. Glanton hailed us. He was from Texas, original, and was rough in his speech and free with his weapons. But me and him had always got along very well. "'Where are you all going?' demanded Uncle Jacob. I am Professor Van Brock of New York, said the tenderfoot, whilst Bill was getting rid of his tobacco wad. I have employed Mr. Glanton here to guide me up into the mountains. I am on the track of a tribe of aborigines which, according to fairly well-substantiated rumor, have inhabited the haunted mountains since time immemorial. Listen here, you four-eyed runt, said Uncle Jacob in wrath. Are you giving me the horse laugh? I assure you that equine levity is the furthest thing from my thoughts, says Van Brock. While stirring the country in the interests of science, I heard the rumors to which I have referred. In a village possessing the singular appellation of Chod Ear, I met an aged prospector who told me that he had seen one of the aborigines, clad in the skin of a wild animal and armed with a bludgeon. The wild man, he said, emitted a most peculiar and piercing cry when sighted, and fled into the recesses of the hills. I am confident that it is some survivor of a pre-Indian race, and I am determined to investigate. They ain't no such critter in these hills, snorted Uncle Jacob. I've roamed all over em for thirty year, and I ain't seen no wild man. Well, says Glanton, they's something unnatural up there, cause I've been hearing some funny yarns myself. I never thought I'd be hunting wild men, he says, but since that hash-slinger in perdition turned me down to elope with a traveling salesman, I welcomes the chance to lose myself in the mountains and forget the perfidy of womankind. What you all doing up here? Prospecting? he said, glancing at the tools on the mule. Not in earnest, said Uncle Jacob hurriedly. We're just kind of whiling away our time. There ain't no gold in these mountains. Folks say that lost haunted mine is up here somewhere, said Glanton. A pack of lies, snorted Uncle Jacob. 
busting into a sweat. Ain't no such mine. Well, Breckenridge, let's be shovin'. Gotta make Antelope Peak before sundown. I thought we was going to Apache Canyon, I says. And he give me an awful glare and said, Yes, Breckenridge, that's right. Antelope Peak, just like you said. So long, gents. So long, said Glanton. So we turned off the trail almost at right angles to our course, me following Uncle Jacob bewilderedly. When we was out of sight of the others, he reined around again. When nature gave you the body of a giant Breckenridge, he said, she plumb forgot to give you any brains to go along with your muscles. You want everybody to know what we're looking for? Ah, I said, them fellows is just looking for wild men. Wild men, he snorted. They don't have to go no further than Chaudy or on payday night to find more wild men than they can handle. I ain't swallowing no such stuff. Gold is what they're after, I tell you. I seen Glanton talking to that Max in perdition the day I bought the map from him. I believe they either got wind of that mine or know I got that map, or both. What you gonna do? I asked him. Head for Apache Canyon by another trail, he said. So we done so, and arrived there after night, him not willing to stop till we got there. It was deep, with big high cliffs cut with ravines and gulches here and there, and very wild in appearance. We didn't descend into the canyon that night, but camped on a plateau above it. Uncle Jacob allowed we'd begin exploring next morning. He said there were lots of caves in the canyon, and he'd been in all of them. He said he hadn't never found nothing except bars and painters and rattlesnakes, but he believed one of them caves went on through to another hidden canyon, and there was where the gold was at. Next morning I was awoke by Uncle Jacob shaking me, and his whiskers was curling with rage. "'What's the matter?' I demanded, setting up, pulling my guns. "'They're here!' he squalled. "'Doggone it! I suspected them all the time. "'Get up, you big lunk! "'Don't sit there gawping with a gun in each hand like an idiot. "'They're here, I tell you. "'Who's here?' I asked. "'That dern tenderfoot and his cussed Texas gunfighter,' snarled Uncle Jacob. "'I was up just at daylight, and pretty soon I seen a wisp of smoke curling up from behind a big rock the other side of the flat. I snuck over there, and there was Glanton frying bacon, and Van Brock was pretending to be looking at some flowers with a magnifying glass. The blame fake. He ain't no professor. I bet he's a dern crook. They're follering us. They aim to murder us and rob us of my map. Ah, uh, Glanton wouldn't do that, I said. And Uncle Jacob said, You shut up. A man'll do anything where gold is concerned. Dang it all, get up and do something. Are you gonna sit there, you big lummox, and let us get murdered in our sleep? That's the trouble with being the biggest man in your clan. The rest of the family always dumps all the unpleasant jobs onto your shoulders. I pulled on my boots and headed across the flat with Uncle Jacob's war songs ringing in my ears and I didn't notice whether he was bringing up the rear with his Winchester or not. There was a scattering of trees on the flat, and about halfway across a figure emerged from amongst them, headed my direction with fire in his eye. It was Glanton. 
So, you big mountain grizzly, he greeted me rambunctiously. You was going to Antelope Peak, eh? Kind of got off the road, didn't you? Oh, we're on to you, we are. What you mean, I demanded. He was acting like he was the one which ought to feel righteously indignant instead of me. You know what I mean, he says, frothing slightly at the mouth. I didn't believe it when Van Brock first said he suspicioned you, even though you hombres did act funny yesterday when we met you on the trail. But this morning, when I glimpsed your fool Uncle Jacob spying on our camp, and then seen him sneaking off through the brush, I knowed Van Brock was right. You're after what we're after, and you all resorts to dirty, underhanded tactics. Does you deny you're after the same thing we are? No, I don't, I said. Uncle Jacob's got more right to it than you all. And when you says we use underhanded tricks, you're a liar. That settles it, gnashed he. Go for your gun. I don't want to perforate you, I growled. I ain't hankering to conclude your mortal career, he admitted. But Haunted Mountain ain't big enough for both of us. Take off your guns and I'll maul the living daylights out of you, big as you be. I unbuckled my gun belt and hung it on a limb, and he laid off his'n and hit me in the stomach and on the ear and in the nose. Then he socked me in the jaw and knocked out a tooth. This made me mad, so I'd taken him by the neck and throwed him against the ground so hard it jolted all the wind out of him. I then sawed on him and started banging his head against the convenient boulder, and his cussin' was terrible to hear. If you all had acted like white men, I gritted, we'd a give you a share in that there mine. What you talking about? he gurgled, trying to haul his buoy out of his boot, which I had my knee on. The lost haunted mine, of course, I snarled, getting a fresh grip on his ears. Hold on, he protested. You mean you all are just looking for gold on the level? I was so astonished I quit hammering his skull against the rock. Why, what else? I demanded. Ain't you all follerin' us to steal Uncle Jacob's map which shows whereat the mine is hid? Get off of me, he snorted disgustfully, taking advantage of my surprise to push me off. Hell, he said, and starting to knock the dust off his breeches. I might have knowed that tenderfoot was wool-gathering. After we seen you all yesterday and he heard you mention Apache Canyon, he told me he believed you was follerin' us. He said that yarn about prospectin' was just a blind. He said he believed you was workin' for a rival scientific society to get ahead of us and capture that there wild man yourselves. What? I said. You mean that wild man yarn is straight? So far as we're concerned, said Bill, prospectors has been telling some unusual stories about a patchy canyon. Well, I laughed at him at first, but he kept on using so many forty-five caliber words that he got me to believe in it might be so. Cause, after all, here was me guiding a tenderfoot on the trail of a wild man, and they wasn't no reason to think you and Jacob Grimes was any more sensible than me. Then this morning when I seen Joab peeking at me from the brush, 
I decided Van Brock must be right. You all hadn't never went to Antelope Peak. The more I thought it over, the more certain I was you was following us to steal our wild man. So I started over to have a showdown. Well, I said, we've reached an understanding at last. You don't want our mine, and we sure don't want your wild man. There's plenty of them amongst my relatives on Bear Creek. Let's get Van Brock and lug him over to our camp and explain things to him and my weak-minded uncle. All right, said Glanton, buckling on his guns. Hey, what's that? From down in the canyon came a yell. Help! Aid! Assistance! It's Van Brock, yelped Glanton. He's wandered down into the canyon by himself. Come on. Right near their camp, there was a ravine leading down to the floor of the canyon. We pelted down that at full speed and emerged near the wall of the cliffs. There was the black mouth of a cave showing nearby in a kind of cleft, and just outside this cleft Van Brock was staggering around, yowling like a hound dog with his tail caught in the door. His cork helmet was lying on the ground, all bashed out of shape, and his spectacles was lying near it. He had a knob on his head as big as a turnip, and he was doing a kind of ghost dance or something all over the place. He couldn't see very good without his specs, because when he sighted us he gave a shriek and started legging it for the other end of the canyon, seeming to think we was more enemies. Not wanting to indulge in no sprint in that heat, Bill shot a heel off his boot, and that brought him down, squalling blue murder. Help! he shrieked. Mr. Glanton, help! I am being attacked! Help! Ah, shut up, snorted Bill. I'm Glanton. You're all right. Give him his specs, Breck. Now, what's the matter? He put them on, gasping for breath, and staggered up, wild-eyed, and pointed at the cave, and hollered, the wild man! I saw him as I descended into the canyon on a private exploring expedition, a giant with a panther skin about his waist and a club in his hand. He dealt me a murderous blow with a bludgeon when I sought to apprehend him and fled into that cavern. He should be arrested. I looked into the cave. It was too dark to see anything except for a hoot owl. He must have saw something, Breck, said Glanton, hitching his gun harness. Something sure cracked him on the conk. I've been hearing some queer tales about this canyon myself. Maybe I'd better sling some lead in there. No, 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 broke in Van Brock. We must capture him alive. What's going on here? said a voice, and we turned to see Uncle Jacob approaching with his Winchester in his hands. Everything's all right, Uncle Jacob, I said. They don't want your mine. They're after the wild man, like they said and we got him cornered in that there cave. All right, huh, he snorted. I reckon you thinks it's all right for you to waste your time with such darn foolishness when you ought to be helping me look for my mine. A big help you be. Where was you whilst I was arguing with Bill here, I demanded. I knowed you could handle the situation, so I started exploring the canyon, he said. Come on, we got work to do. But the wild man, cried Van Brock, your nephew would be invaluable in securing the specimen. Think of science, think of progress, think of... Think of a striped skunk, 
snorted Uncle Jacob. Breckenridge, are you coming? Ah, shut up, I said disgustedly. You both make me tired. I'm going in there and run that wild man out. And, Bill, you shoot him in the hind leg when he comes out so's we can catch him and tie him up. But you left your guns hanging on to that limb up on the plateau, objected Glanton. I don't need em, I said. Didn't you hear Van Brock say we was to catch him alive? If I started shooting in the dark, I might ruin him. All right, says Bill, cocking his six-shooters. Go ahead. I figure you're a match for any wild man that ever come down the pike. So I went into the cleft and entered the cave, and it was dark as all get out. I groped my way along and discovered the main tunnel split into two, so I'd taken the biggest one. It seemed to get darker the further I went, and pretty soon I bumped into something big and hairy, and it went whoop and grabbed me. Thinks I, it's the wild man, and he's on the warpath. We waded into each other, tumbled around on the rocky floor in the dark, biting and mauling and tearing. I'm the biggest and fightinest man on Bear Creek, which is famed far and wide for its ring-tailed scrappers. But this wild man sure give me my hands full. He was the biggest, hairiest critter I ever laid hands on, and he had more teeth and talons than I thought a human could possibly have. He chawed me with vigor and enthusiasm, and he waltzed up and down my frame free and hearty, and swept the floor with me till I was groggy. For a while I thought I was going to give up the ghost, and I thought with despair how humiliated my relatives on Bear Creek would be to hear their champion battler had been clawed to death by a wild man in a cave. That made me plumb ashamed for weakening, and the socks I give to him ought to laid out any man, wild or tame, to say nothing of the pile-driver kicks in his belly, and button him with my head so he gasped. I got what felt like an ear in my mouth, and commenced chawing on it, and presently, what with this and other mayhem I committed on him, he give a most inhuman squall, and bust away and went lickety-split for the outside world. I riz up and staggered after him, hearing a wild chorus of yells break forth outside, but no shots. I bust out into the open, bloody all over and my clothes hanging in tatters. Where is he? I hollered. Did you let him get away? Ooh, said Glanton, coming out from behind a boulder, whilst Van Brock and Uncle Jacob dropped down out of a tree nearby. The wild man, damn it, I roared. We ain't seen no wild man, said Glanton. Well, what was that thing I'd just run out of the cave, I hollered. That was a grizzly bar, said Glanton. Yeah, sneered Uncle Jacob, and that was Van Brock's wild man. And now, Breckenridge, if you're through playing, we'll... No, no, hollered Van Brock, jumping up and down. It was a human being which smote me and fled into the cavern, not a bear. It is still in there somewhere, unless there is another exit to the cavern. Well, he ain't in there now, said Uncle Jacob, peering into the mouth of the cave. Not even a wild man would run into a grizzly's cave, or if he did, he wouldn't stay long. Oof! 
A rock come whizzing out of the cave and hit Uncle Jacob in the belly, and he doubled up on the ground. Aha! I roared, knocking up Glanton's ready six-shooter. I know. There's two tunnels in there. He's in the smaller cave. I went into the wrong one. Stay here, you all, and give me room. This time I gets him. With that I rushed into the cave mouth again, disregarding some more rocks which emerged, and plunged into the smaller opening. It was dark as pitch, but I seemed to be running along a narrow tunnel, and ahead of me I heard bare feet pattern on the rock. I followed them at full lope and presently seen a faint hint of light. The next minute I rounded a turn and come out into a wide place, which was lit up by a shaft of light coming in through a cleft in the wall, some yards up. In the light I seen a fantastic figure climbing up on a ledge, trying to reach that cleft. Come down off of that, I thundered, and give a leap and grabbed the ledge by one hand and hung on, and reached for his legs with the other hand. He give a squall as I grabbed his ankle and splintered his club over my head. The force of the lick broke off the lip of the rock ledge I was holding on to, and we crashed to the floor together, because I didn't let loose of him. Fortunately, I hit the rock floor head first, which broke my fall and kept me from fracturing any of my important limbs, and his head hit my jaw, which rendered him unconscious. I riz up and picked up my limp captive and carried him out into the daylight where the others was waiting. I dumped him on the ground, and they stared at him like they couldn't believe it. He was a gaunt old cuss with whiskers about a foot long and matted hair, and he had a mountain lion's hide tied around his waist. A white man, enthused Van Brock, dancing up and down. An unmistakable Caucasian. This is stupendous. A prehistoric survivor of a pre-Indian epoch. What an aid to anthropology. A wild man, a veritable wild man. Wild man hell, snorted Uncle Jacob. That there's old Joshua Braxton, which was trying to marry that old maid school teacher down at Chaud Ear all last winter. I was trying to marry her, said Joshua bitterly, setting up suddenly and glaring at all of us. That there is good, that there is and me all the time fighting for my life against it. Her and all her relations was trying to marry her to me. They made my life a curse. They was finally all set to kidnap me and marry me by force. That's why I come away off up here and put on this rig to scare folks away. All I craves is peace and quiet and no dern women. Van Brock began to cry because there wasn't no wild man, and Uncle Jacob said, Well, now that this darn foolishness is settled, maybe I can get to something important. Joshua, you know these mountains even better than I do. I want you to help me find the lost haunted mine. There ain't no such mine, said Joshua. That old prospector imagined all that stuff whilst he was wandering around over the desert crazy. "'But I got a map I bought from a Mexican in perdition,' hollered Uncle Jacob. "'Let me see that map,' said Glanton. "'Why, hell,' he said, "'that there's a fake. "'I seen that Mexican drawing it, "'and he said he was going to try to sell it to some old Jassic "'for the price of a drunk, 
Uncle Jacob sat down on a rock and pulled his whiskers. My dreams is bust, he said weakly. I'm going home to my wife. You must be desperate if it's come to that, said old Joshua acidly. You better stay up here. If there ain't no gold, they ain't no women to torment a body either. Women is a snare and a delusion, agreed Glanton. Van Rock can go back with these fellers. I'm staying with Joshua. You all ought to be ashamed talking about women that way, I reproached him. What, in this here lousy and troubled world, can compare to women's gentle sweetness? There the scoundrel is, screeched a familiar voice. Don't let him get away. Shoot him if he tries to run. We turned sudden. We'd been arguing so loud amongst ourselves we hadn't noticed a gang of folks coming down the ravine. There was Aunt Lavaca and the sheriff of Chaudier with ten men, and they all pinted sawed-off shotguns at me. Don't get rough, Elkins, warned the sheriff nervously. They're all loaded with buckshot and ten-penny nails. I knows your reputation, and I takes no chances. I arrest you for the kidnapping of Jacob Grimes. Are you plumb crazy? I demanded. Kidnapping, hollered Aunt Lavaque, waving a piece of paper. Abducting your poor old uncle, aiming to hold him for ransom. It's all writ down in your own handwriting here on this here paper. Says you're taking Jacob away off into the mountains, warning me not to try to foller, same as threatening me. I never heard of such doin's. Soon as that good-for-nothin Joe Hopkins brung me that there insolent letter, I went right after the sheriff. Joshua Braxton, what are you doin' in them undecent togs? My lands, I don't know what we're comin' to. Well, sheriff, what you standin' there for like a ninny? Why don't you put some handcuffs and chains and shackles on him? Air you scared of the big lunkhead? Aw, oh, heck, I said. This is all a mistake. I warn't threatening nobody in that there letter. Then where's Jacob? she demanded. Produce him immediately, or... He ducked into that cave, said Glanton. I stuck my head in and roared, Uncle Jacob? You come out of there and explain before I come in after you. He snuck out, looking meek and downtrodden, and I says, You tell these idiots that I ain't no kidnapper. That's right, he said. I brung him along with me. Hell, said the sheriff disgustedly. Have we come all this way on a wild goose chase? I should have knew better than to listen to a woman. You shit your fool mouth, squalled Aunt Lavaca. A fine sheriff you be. Anyway, what was Breckenridge doing up here with you, Jacob? He was helping me look for a mine, Lavaki, he said. Helping you, she screeched, why I sent him to fetch you back. Breckenridge Elkins, I'll tell your pap about this, you big, lazy, good-for-nothing, low-down ornery. Ah, shut up, I roared, exasperated beyond endurance. 
I seldom lets my voice go its full blast. Echoes rolled through the canyon like thunder, the trees shook and the pine cones fell like hail, and rocks tumbled down the mountainsides. Aunt Lavaca staggered backwards with an outraged squall. Jacob, she hollered, are you going to allow that ruffian to use that there tone of voice to me? I demand you flail the living daylights out of that scoundrel right now. Uncle Jacob winked at me. Now, now, Lavaki, he started soothing her, and she gave him a clip under the ear which changed ends with him. The sheriff and his posse and Van Brock took out up the ravine like the devil was after him. And Glanton bit off a chaw to backer and said to me, he says, Well, what was you fixin' to say about woman's gentle sweetness? Nothing, I snarled. Come on, let's get going. I yearns to find a more quiet and secluded spot than this hearn. I'm staying with Joshua and you and the grizzly. End of the Haunted Mountain War on Bear Creek by Robert Howard This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. War on Bear Creek by Robert Howard Pap dug the nineteenth buckshot out of my shoulder and said, Pigs is more disturbin' to the peace of a community than scandal, divorce, and corn liquor put together. And, says Pap, pausing to strop his buoy on my scalp where the hair was all burnt off, when the pig is a razorback hog and is mixed up with a lady school teacher, an English tenderfoot, and a passel of bloodthirsty relatives, the result is a Hollin' for a peaceable man to behold. Hold still till John gets your ears sewed back on. Pap was right. I weren't to blame for what happened. Breakin' Joel Gordon's leg was a mistake, and Erath Elkins is a liar when he says I caved in them five ribs of his'n plumb on purpose. If Uncle Jeopard Grimes had been tending to his own business, he wouldn't have got the seat of his breeches filled with buckshot, and I don't figure it was my fault that Cousin Bill Kirby's cabin got burned down, and I don't take no blame for Jim Gordon's ear, which Jack Grimes shot off neither. I figure everybody was more to blame than I was, and I stand ready to wipe up the earth with anybody which disagrees with me. But it was that dern razorback hog Uncle Jeffrey Grimes which started the whole mess. It begun when that there tenderfoot come riding up the trail with Tunk Willoughby from war paint. Now Tunk ain't got no more sense than the law allows, but he sure showed good judgment that time, because having delivered his charge to his destination, he didn't tarry. He merely handed me a note and pinted dumbly at the tenderfoot, whilst holding his hat reverently in his hand, meanwhile. "'What you mean by that there gesture?' I asked him rather irritably, and he says, 
I doss my sombrero in respect to the departed. Bringing a specimen like that on the Bear Creek is just like heaving a jackrabbit to a pack of starving lobos. He hove a sigh and shook his head and put his hat back on. Rassle a cat in pieces, he said, gathering up the reins. What the hell are you talking about, I demanded. That's Latin, he said. It means rest in peace. And with that, he dusted it down the trail and left me alone with Tenderfoot, which all the time was setting his cayuse and looking at me like I was a curiosity or something. I called my sister, Washita, to come and read that there note for me, which she did, and it run as follows. Dear Breckenridge, this will introduce Mr. Pembroke Pemberton, a English sportsman which I met in Frisco recent. He was disappointed because he hadn't found no adventures in America and was fixin' to go to Africa to shoot lions and elephants. But I persuaded him to come with me because I knowed he would find more hell on Bear Creek in a week than he would find in a year in Africa or any other place. But the very day we hit war paint, I run into an old acquaintance from Texas. I will not speak no harm of the dead, but I wish the son of a buzzard had shot me somewheres besides in my left leg, which already had three slugs in it, which I never could get cut out. Anyway, I am laid up and not able to come on to Bear Creek with J. Pembroke Pemberton. I am dependent on you to show him some good bear hunting and other excitement and protect him from your relatives. I know what uh, awful responsibility I am putting on you, but I am asking this as your friend, William Harrison Glanton, Esquire. I looked J. Pembroke over. He was a medium-sized young feller and looked kind of soft in spots. He had yeller hair and very pink cheeks like a gal and he had on whipcord breeches and tan riding boots, which was the first I ever seen, and he had on a funny kind of coat with pockets and a belt, which he called a shooting jacket, and a big hat like a mushroom made out of cork with a red ribbon around it, and he had a pack horse loaded with all kinds of plunder and four or five different kinds of shotguns and rifles. So you're J. Pembroke, I says, and he says, Oh, rather, and you no doubt are the person Mr. Clanton described to me, Breckenridge Elkins? Yeah, I said, light and come on in. We got bar meat and honey for supper. I say, he said, climbing down, pardon me for being a bit personal, old chap, but may I ask if your, um, magnitude of bodily stature is not a bit unique i don't know i says not having the slightest idea what he was talking about i always votes a straight democratic ticket myself he started to say something else but just then pap and my brothers john and bill and jim and buckner and garfield come to the door to see what the noise was about and he turned pale and said faintly i beg your pardon giants seem to be the rule in these parts pap says men ain't what they was when he was in his prime i said but we managed to get by 
Well, J. Pembroke laid into them bar stakes with a hearty will, and when I told him we'd go after bar next day, he asked me how many days travel it'd take till we got to the bar country. Heck, I said, you don't have to travel to get bar in these parts. If you forget to bolt your door at night, you're liable to find a grisly share in your bunk before morning. This herein we're eating was catched by my sister Ellen there, whilst trying to rob the pig-pen out behind the cabin last night. My word, he says, looking at her peculiarly, and may I ask, Miss Elkins, what caliber of firearm you used? I knocked him in the head with a wagon-tongue, she said, and he shook his head to himself and muttered, Extraordinary. J. Pembroke slept in my bunk, and I took the floor that night and we was up at daylight and ready to start after the bar. Whilst J. Pembroke was fussing over his guns, Pap came out and pulled his whiskers and shook his head and said, That there is a perlite young man, but I'm afeard he ain't as hale as he ought to be. I'd just give him a pull at my jug, and he didn't gulp but one good snort and like to choke to death. Well, I said, buckling the cinches on Captain Kidd, I've done learned not to judge outsiders by the way they takes their liquor on Bear Creek. It takes a Bear Creek man to swig Bear Creek corn juice. I hopes for the best, sighed Pap, but it's a dismal sight to see a young man which can't stand up to his liquor. Where you taking him? Over toward Apache Mountain, I said. Erath seen an extra big grizzly over there day before yesterday. Hmm, says Pap. By peculiar coincidence, the schoolhouse is over on the side of Apache Mountain, ain't it, Breckenridge? Maybe it is, and maybe it ain't, I replied with dignity, and rode off with J. Pembroke, ignoring Pap's sarcastic comment, which he hollered after me. Maybe they's a connection between book learning and bar hunting, but who am I to say? J. Pembroke was a pretty good rider, but he used a funny-looking saddle without no horn nor cantle, and he had the derndest gun I ever seen. It was a double-barreled rifle, and he said it was an elephant gun. It was big enough to knock a hill down. He was surprised I didn't tote no rifle and asked me what would I do if we met a bar. I told him I was dependent on him to shoot it, but I said if it was necessary for me to get into action, my six-shooter was plenty. My word, says he, you mean to say you can bring down a grizzly with a shot from a pistol? Not always, I said. Sometimes I have to bust him over the head with a butt to finish him. He didn't say nothing for a long time after that. Well, we rode over on the lower slopes of Apache Mountain and tied the horses in a holler and went through the brush on foot. That was a good place for bars because they come there very frequently looking for Uncle Jeffrey Grimes' pigs which runs loose all over the lower slopes of the mountain. But just like it always is when you're looking for something, we didn't see a cussed bar. The middle of the evening found us around on the south side of the mountain where they is a settlement of Kirby's and Grimes's and Gordon's. Half a dozen family has their cabins within a mile of each other, 
and I don't know what in hell they want to crowd up together that way for. It would plumb smother me. But Pap says they was always peculiar that way. We weren't in sight of the settlement, but the schoolhouse weren't far off, and I said to J. Pembroke, You wait here a while, and maybe a bar'll come by. Miss Margaret Ashley is teaching me how to read and write, and it's time for my lesson. I left J. Pembroke settin' on a log, huggin' his elephant gun, and I strode through the brush and came out at the upper end of the run, which the settlement was at the other end and school had just turned out, and the children was going home, and Miss Ashley was waiting for me in the log schoolhouse. That was the first school that was ever taught on Bear Creek, and she was the first teacher. Some of the folks was awful sought again it at first, and said no good would come of book learning, but after I licked six or seven of em, they allowed it might be a good thing after all, and agreed to let her take a whack at it. Miss Margaret was an awful purty gal, and come from somewhere away back east. She was settin' at her handmade desk as I come in, duckin' my head so as to not bump it agin the top of the door, and politely takin' off my coonskin cap. She looked kind of tired and discouraged, and I said, Has a young'un's been raisin' any hell today, Miss Margaret? Oh, no, she said. They're very polite. In fact, I've noticed that Bear Creek people are always polite except when they're killing each other. I've finally gotten used to the boys wearing their bowie knives and pistols to school, but somehow it seems so futile. This is all so terribly different from everything to which I've always been accustomed. I get discouraged and feel like giving up. Oh, you'll get used to it, I consoled her. It'll be a lot different once you're married to some honest, reliable young man. She gave me a startled look and said, Married to someone here on Bear Creek? Sure, I said, involuntarily expanding my chest under my buckskin shirt. Everybody's just wondering when you'll set the date. But let's get at the lesson. I done learnt the words you writ out for me yesterday. But she weren't listening, and she said, do you have any idea why Mr. Joel Grimes and Mr. Esau Gordon quit calling on me? Until a few days ago, one or the other was at Mr. Kirby's cabin where I board almost every night. Now don't you worry none about them, I soothed her. Joel'll be about on crutches before the week's out, and Esau can already walk without being helped. I always handles my relatives as easy as possible. You fought with them, she exclaimed. I just convinced them you didn't want to be bothered with them, I reassured her. I'm easy going, but I don't like competition. Competition? Her eyes flared wide open and she looked at me like she'd never seen me before. Do you mean that you, that I, that... Well, I said modestly, everybody on Bear Creek is just wondering when you're going to set the day for us to get hitched. You see, gals don't stay single very long in these parts, and, hey, what's the matter? Because she was getting paler and paler, like she'd et something which didn't agree with her. Nothing, she said faintly. You, you mean people are expecting me to marry you? Sure, I said. She muttered something that sounded like, my God and licked her lips with her tongue and looked at me like she was about ready to faint. 
Well, it ain't every gal which has a chance to get hitched to Breckenridge Elkins, so I didn't blame her for being excited. You've been very kind to me, Breckenridge, she said feebly, but I... This is so sudden, so unexpected. I, I never thought. I never dreamed. Oh, I don't want to rush you, I said. Take your time. Next week will be soon enough. Anyway, I gotta build us a cabin and bang went a gun. Too loud for a Winchester. Elkins! It was J. Pembroke yelling for me up the slope. Elkins! Hurry! Who's that? she exclaimed, jumping to her feet like she was working on a spring. Oh, I said in disgust, it's a fool tenderfoot Bill Glanton wished on me. I reckon a bar has got him by the neck. I'll go see. I'll go with you, she said, but from the way Pembroke was yelling, I figured I'd better not waste no time getting to him, so I couldn't wait for her, and she was some piece behind me when I mounted the lap of the slope and met him running out from amongst the trees. He was gibbering with excitement. I winged it, he squawked. I'm sure I winged the blighter, but it ran in amongst the underbrush, and I dared not follow it, for the beast is most vicious when wounded. A friend of mine once wounded one in South Africa, and a bar, I asked. No, no, he said, a wild boar, the most vicious brute I have ever seen. It ran into that brush there. Oh, there ain't no wild boars in the Humboldts, I snorted. You wait here. I'll go see just what you did shoot. I seen some splashes of blood on the grass, so I knowed he'd shot something. Well, I hadn't gone more than a few hundred feet and was just out of sight of J. Pembroke when I run into Uncle Jefford Grimes. Uncle Jefford was one of the first white men that come into the Humboldts. He's as lean and hard as a pine knot and wears fringed buckskins and moccasins just like he done fifty years ago. He had a bowie knife in one hand and he waved something in the other like a flag of revolt and he was frothing at the mouth. Stern murderer, he howled. You see this? That's the tail of Daniel Webster, the finest stern razorback boar which ever trod the Humboldts. That dang tenderfoot of yearn tried to kill him, shot his tail off right spang up to the hilt. He can't mutilate my animals like this. I'll have his heart's blood. And he done a war dance, waving that pigtail in his buoy and cussing in English and Spanish and Apache Injun all at once. You calm down, Uncle Jeppard, I said sternly. He ain't got no sense, and he thought Daniel Webster was a wild boar, like they have in Africa and England and them foreign places. He didn't mean no harm. No harm, said Uncle Jeppard fiercely. And Daniel Webster with no more tail on to him than a jackrabbit. Well, I said, here's a five-dollar gold piece to pay for the darn hog's tail, and you let J. Pembroke alone. Gold can't satisfy honor, he said bitterly, but nevertheless grabbing the coin like a starving man grabbing a beefsteak. I'll let this outrage pass for the time, but I'll be watching that maniac to see that he don't mutilate no more of my prize razorbacks. And so saying, he went off, muttering in his beard. I went back to where I left J. Pembroke, and there he was talking to Miss Margaret, which had just come up. She had more color in her face than I'd saw recent. 
Fancy meeting a girl like you here, Jay Pembroke was saying. No more surprising than meeting a man like you, says she, with a kind of fluttery laugh. Oh, a sportsman wanders into all sorts of out-of-the-way places, says he. And seeing they hadn't noticed me coming up, I says, Well, Jay Pembroke, I didn't find your wild boar, but I met the owner. He looked at me kind of blank and said vaguely, Wild boar? What wild boar? That un you shot the tail off of with that there fool elephant gun, I says. Listen, next time you see a hog critter, you remember there ain't no wild boars in the Humboldts. They's craters called Haverleaners in South Texas, but they ain't even none of them in Nevada. So next time you see a hog, just reflect that it's merely one of Uncle Jeopard Grimes's razorbacks and refrain from shooting at it. Oh, quite he agreed absently, and started talking to Miss Margaret again. So I picked up the elephant gun, which he'd absent-mindedly laid down, and said, Well, it's getting late. Let's go. We won't get back to Pap's cabin tonight, Jay Pembroke. We'll stay at Uncle Saul Garfield's cabin on t'other side of Apache Mountain settlement. As I said, then cabins was awful close together. Uncle Saul's cabin was below the settlement, but it weren't much over three hundred yards from Cousin Bill Kirby's cabin, where Miss Margaret boarded. The other cabins was on t'other side of Bill's, mostly, strung out up the run and up and down the slopes. I told Jay Pembroke and Miss Margaret to walk on down to the settlement whilst I went back and got the horses. They'd got to the settlement time I catched up with them, and Miss Margaret had gone into the Kirby cabin, and I seen a light spring up in her room. She had one of them new-fangled aisle lamps she brung with her, the only one on Bear Creek. Candles and pine chunks was good enough for us folks, and she'd hanged ragged things over the winders, which she called curtains. You never seen nothing like it. I tell you, she was that elegant you wouldn't believe it. We walked on toward Uncle Saul's, me leading the horses, and after a while Jay Pembroke says, A wonderful creature. You mean Daniel Webster? I asked. No, he said. No, no. I mean Miss Ashley. She sure is, I said. She'll make me a fine wife. He whirled like I'd stabbed him, and his face looked pale in the dusk. You, he said. You a wife? Well, I said bashfully, she ain't sought the day yet, but I've sure sought my heart on that gal. Oh, he says. Oh, says he, like he had the toothache. Then he said, kind of hesitatingly, Suppose, er, just suppose, you know, suppose a rival for her affection should appear. What would you do? You mean, if some dirty, low-down son of a mangy skunk was trying to steal my gal, I said, whirling so sudden he staggered backwards. Steal my gal? I roared, seeing red at the mere thought. Why, I'd, I'd, words failing me, I wheeled and grabbed a good-sized sapling and tore it up by the roots and broke it across my knee and throwed the pieces clean through a rail fence on the other side of the road. That there is a faint idea, I said, panting with passion. That gives me a very good conception, he said faintly, and he said nothing more till we reached the cabin and seen Uncle Saul Garfield standing in the light of the door, combing his black beard with his fingers. Next morning, Jay Pembroke seemed like he'd kind of lost interest in bars. 
He said all that walking he done over the slopes of Apache Mountain had made his leg muscles sore. I never heard of such a thing, but nothing that gets the matter with these tender feet surprises me much. They is such a effeminate race. So I asked him would he like to go fishing down the run. He said all right. But we hadn't been fishing more than an hour when he said he believed he'd go back to Uncle Saul's cabin and take him a nap and he insisted on going alone, so I stayed where I was and catched me a nice string of trout. I went back to the cabin about noon and asked Uncle Saul if J. Pembroke had got his nap out. Why, heck, said Uncle Saul, I ain't seen him since you and him started down the run this morning. Wait a minute, yonder he comes from the other direction. Well, J. Pembroke didn't say where he'd been all morning, and I didn't ask him, because a tenderfoot don't generally have no reason for anything he does. We ate the trout I catched, and after dinner he perked up a right smart and got a shotgun and said he'd like to hunt some wild turkeys. I'd never heard of anybody hunting anything as big as a turkey with a shotgun, but I didn't say nothing, because tenderfeet is like that. So we headed up the slopes of Apache Mountain, and I stopped by the schoolhouse to tell Miss Margaret I probably wouldn't get back in time to take my reading and writing lesson. And she said, You know, until I met your friend, Mr. Pembroke, I didn't realize what a difference there was between men like him and, well, like the men on Bear Creek. I know, I said, but don't hold it again him. He means well. He just ain't got no sense. Everybody can't be smart like me. As a special favor to me, Miss Margaret, I'd like for you to be extra nice to the poor sap, because he's a friend of my friend, Bill Glanton, down to Warpaint. I will, Brackenridge, she replied heartily, and I thanked her and went away with my big manly heart pounding in my gigantic bosom. Me and J. Pembroke headed into the heavy timber, and we hadn't went far till I was convinced that somebody was follerin' us. I kept hearin' twigs snappin', and once I thought I seen a shadowy figure ducked behind a bush, but when I run back there it was gone, and no track to show in the pine needles. That sort of thing would have made me nervous anywhere else, because they is an awful lot of people which would like to get a clean shot at my back from the brush, but I knowed none of them dast come after me in my own territory. If anybody was trailing us, it was bound to be one of my relatives, and to save my neck, I couldn't think of no reason why any one of them would be gunning for me. But I got tired of it, and left J. Pembroke in a small glade while I snuck back to do some shattering of my own. I aimed to cast a big circle around the opening and see if I could find out who it was. But I'd hardly got out of sight of J. Pembroke when I heard a gun bang. I turned to run back, and here come J. Pembroke yelling, I got him! I got him! I winged the Bali Aborigine! He had his head down as he busted through the brush, and he run into me in his excitement and hit me in the belly with his head so hard he bounced back like a rubber ball and landed in a bush with his riding boots brandishing wildly in the air. "'Assist me, Breckenridge!' he shrieked. "'Extricate me! They will be hot on our trail!' "'Who?' I demanded, hauling him out by the hind leg and setting him on his feet. "'The Indians!' he hollered, 
jumping up and down and waving his smoking shotgun frantically. The bally redskins! I shot one of them. I saw him sneaking through the bushes. I saw his legs. I know it was an Indian because he had on moccasins instead of boots. Listen, that's him now. An Indian couldn't cuss like that, I said. You've shot Uncle Jeopard Grimes. Telling him to stay there, I run through the brush, guided by the maddened howls which riz horribly on the air, and busting through some bushes I seen Uncle Jeopard rolling on the ground with both hands clasped to the rear bosom of his buckskin breeches, which was smoking freely. His language was awful to hear. Are you in misery, Uncle Jeopard? I inquired solicitously. This evoked another ear-splitting squall. I'm writhing in my death throes, he says in horrible accents, and you stands there and mocks my mortal agony. My own blood kin, he says. Ah, 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 says Uncle Jeopard with passion. Aw, oh, I says, that there birdshot wouldn't hurt a flea. It can't be very deep under your thick old hide. Lie on your belly, Uncle Jeopard, I said, stropping my buoy on my boot, and I'll dig out them shot for you. Don't tetch me, he said fiercely, painfully climbing onto his feet. Where's my rifle gun? Give me it. Now then, I demands that you bring that English murderer here where I can get a clean lamb at him. The grime's honor is besmirched and my new breeches is ruined. Nothing but blood can wipe out the stain on the family honor. Well, I said, you hadn't no business sneaking around after us that away. Here Uncle Jeopard give tongue to loud and painful shrieks. Why shouldn't I? he howled. Ain't a man got no right to protect his own property? I was follering him to see that he didn't shoot no more tails off of my hogs. And now he shoots me in the same place. He's a fiend in human form, a monster, which stalks raveling through these hills, bustin' for the blood of the innocent. Ah, oh, J. Pembroke thought you was an injun, I said. He thought Dan'l Webster was a wild warthog, gibbered Uncle Jeopard. He thought I was Geronimo. I reckon he'll massacre the entire population of Bear Creek under a misapprehension, and you'll uphold and defend him. When the cabins of your kinfolks is smoldering ashes, smothered in the blood of your own relatives, I hope you'll be satisfied, bringing a foreign assassin into a peaceful community. Here Uncle Jeopard's emotions choked him, and he chawed his whiskers, and then yanked out the five-dollar gold piece I give him for Dan'l Webster's tail, and throwed it at me. Take back your filthy lucre, he said bitterly. The day of retribution is close on to hand, Breckenridge Elkins, and the Lord of Battles shall judge between them which turns again their kinfolks in their extremities. In their which, I says, but he merely snarled and went limping off through the trees, calling back over his shoulder. They is still men on Bear Creek which will see justice did for the aged and helpless. I'll get that English murderer if it's the last thing I do, and you'll be sorry you stood up for him, you big lunkhead. I went back to where J. Pembroke was waiting bewilderedly, 
and evidently still expecting a tribe of injuns to bust out of the brush and sculp him and i said in disgust let's go home tomorrow i'll take you so far away from bear creek you can shoot in any direction without hitting a prize razorback or an antiquated gunman with an ingrown disposition when uncle jeopard grimes gets mad enough to throw away money it's time to isle the winchesters and strap your scabbard ends to your legs legs he said mistily but what about the indian there weren't no indian gall dern it i howled they ain't been any on bear creek for four or five year they aw oh, hell what's the use come on it's getting late next time you see something you don't understand ask me before you shoot it and remember the more ferocious and woolly it looks the more likely it is to be a leading citizen of bear creek it was dark when we approached uncle saul's cabin and j pembroke glanced back up the road toward the settlement and said my word is it a political rally look a torchlight parade i looked and said quick get in the cabin and stay there he turned pale and said if there is danger i insist on insist all you durn please i said but get in that house and stay there i'll handle this uncle saul see he gets in there uncle saul is a man of few words he'd taken a firm grip on his pipe stem and grabbed j pembroke by the neck and the seat of the breeches and throwed him bodily into the cabin and shut the door and sot down on the stoop they ain't no use in you getting mixed up in this uncle saul i said you got your faults breckenridge he grunted you ain't got much sense but you're my favorite sister's son and i ain't forgot that lame mule jeopard traded me for a sound animal back in sixty-nine let em come they come all right and surged up in front of the cabin jeopard's boys jack and buck and esau and joash and polk county and erath elkins and a mob of gordons and buckners and polks all more or less kin to me except joe braxton who wasn't kin to any of us but didn't like me because he was sweet on miss margaret but uncle jeopard weren't with em some had torches and polk county grimes had a rope with a noose in it where at air you all goin with that there lariat i asked them sternly plantin my enormous bulk in their path produce the scoundrel said polk county waving his rope round his head bring out the foreign invader which shoots hogs and defenseless old men from the bresh what you aim to do i inquired we aim to hang him they replied with hearty enthusiasm uncle saul knocked the ashes out of his pipe and stood up and stretched his arms which looked like knotted oak limbs and he grinned in his black beard like an old timber wolf and he says where's dear cousin jeopard to speak for hisself uncle jeopard was havin the shot picked out of his hide when we left says joel gordon he'll be along directly breckenridge we don't want no trouble with you but we aims to have that englishman well i snorted you all can't bill glanton is trustin me to return him whole of body and limb and what do you want to waste time in argument for breckenridge uncle saul reproved mildly don't you know it's a plumb waste of time to try to reason with the offspring of a lame mule trader what would you suggest old man sneeringly remarked polk county 
Uncle Saul beamed on him benevolently and said gently, I'd try moral suasion like this, and he hit Polk County under the jaw and knocked him clean across the yard into a rain barrel amongst the ruins of which he reposed until he was rescued and revived some hours later. But they was no stopping Uncle Saul once he took the warpath. No sooner had he disposed of Polk County than he jumped seven foot into the air, cracked his heels together three times, give the rebel yell, and come down with his arms around the necks of Esau Grimes and Joe Braxton, which he went to the earth with and started mopping up the cabin yard with them. That started the fight, and they is no scrap in the world where mayhem is committed as free and fervent as in one of these here family ruckuses. Polk County had hardly crashed into the rain barrel when Jack Grimes stuck a pistol in my face. I slapped it aside just as he fired, and the bullet missed me in taking an ear off of Jim Gordon. I was scared Jack would hurt somebody if he kept on shooting reckless that way, so I kind of wrapped him with my left fist, and how was I to know it would dislocate his jaw? But Jim Gordon seemed to think I was to blame about his ear, because he give a maddened howl and jerked up his shotgun and let bam with both barrels. I ducked just in time to keep from getting my head blowed off and catched most of the double charge in my shoulder, whilst the rest hived in the seat of Steve Kirby's breeches. Being shot that way by a relative was irritating, but I controlled my temper and merely taken the gun away from Jim and splintered the stock over his head. In the meantime, Joel Gordon and Buck Grimes had grabbed one of my legs apiece and was trying to wrestle me to the earth, and Joe Ash Grimes was trying to hold down my right arm, and Cousin Pecus Buckner was beating me over the head from behind with an axe handle and Erath Elkins was coming at me from the front with a bowie knife. I reached down and got Buck Grimes by the neck with my left hand, and I swung my right and hit Erath with it, but I had to lift Joe Ash clean off his feet and swing him around with the lick because he wouldn't let go, so I only knocked Erath through the rail fence, which was around Uncle Saul's garden. About this time I found my left leg was free, and discovered that Buck Grimes was unconscious, so I let go of his neck and begun to kick around with my left leg, and it ain't my fault if the spur got tangled up in Uncle Jonathan Polk's whiskers and jerked most of them out by the root. I shaken Joe Ash off and taken the axe handle away from Pecos, cause I seen he was going to hurt somebody if he kept on swinging it around so reckless, and I don't know why he blames me because his skull got fractured when he hit that tree. He ought to look where he falls when he gets thrown across a cabin yard, and if Joel Gordon hadn't been so stubborn trying to gouge me, he wouldn't have got his leg broke neither. I was handicapped by not wanting to kill any of my kinfolks, but they was so mad they all wanted to kill me, so in spite of my carefulness the casualties was increasing at a rate which would have discouraged anybody but Bear Creek folks but they are the stubbornest people in the world. Three or four had got me around the legs again, refusing to be convinced that I couldn't be throwed that way, and Erath Elkins, having pulled himself out of the ruins of the fence, come charging back with his buoy. By this time I seen I'd have to use violence in spite of myself, so I grabbed Erath and squoze him with a 
grizzly hug, and that was when he got them five ribs caved in, and he ain't spoke to me since. I never seen such a cuss for taking offense over trifles. For a matter of fact, if he hadn't been so bodaciously riled up, if he had kept his head like I did, he would have seen how kindly I felt toward him, even in the fever of that there battle. If I had dropped him underfoot, he might have been tromped on fatally, for I was kicking folks right and left without caring where they fell. So I carefully flung Erath out of the range of that ruckus, and if he thinks I aimed him at Ozark Grimes and his pitchfork, well, I'd just never done it. It was Ozark's fault more than mine for toting that pitchfork, and it ought to be Ozark that Erath cusses when he starts to sit down these days. It was at that moment that somebody swung at me with an axe and ripped my ear nigh off of my head, and I begun to lose my temper. Four or five other relatives was kicking and hitting and biting at me all at once, and they is a limit even to my timid manners and mild nature. I voiced my displeasure with a beller of wrath and lashed out with both fists, and my misguided relatives fell all over the yard like persimmons after a frost. I grabbed Joash Grimes by the ankles and begun to knock them ill-advised idiots in the head with him, and the way he hollered, you'd a thought someone was manhandling him. The yard was beginning to look like a battlefield when the cabin door opened and a deluge of bilin' water descended on us. I got about a gallon down my neck but paid very little attention to it. However, the others ceased hostilities and started rolling on the ground and hollering and cussing, and Uncle Saul riz up from amongst the ruins of Esau Grimes and Joel Braxton and bellered, "'Woman, what are you at?' Aunt Zavala Garfield was standing in the doorway with a kettle in her hand, and she said, "'Will you idiots stop fighting? The Englishman's gone. He run out the back door when the fighting started, saddled his nag, and pulled out. Now will you born fools stop, or will I give you another deluge?' "'Land save us? What's that light?' Somebody was yelling toward the settlement, and I was aware of a peculiar glow which didn't come from such torches as was still burning. And here come Medina Kirby, one of Bill's gals, yelping like a Comanche. Our cabin's burning, she squalled. A stray bullet went through the window and busted Miss Margaret's aisle lamp. With a yell of dismay, I abandoned the fray and headed for Bill's cabin, followed by everybody which was able to follow me. They had been several wild shots fired during the melee, and one of them must have hived in Miss Margaret's winder. The Kirbys had dragged most of their belongings into the yard, and some was bringing water from the creek, but the whole cabin was in a blaze by now. "'Where's Miss Margaret?' I roared. "'She must still be in there,' shrilled Miss Kirby. A beam fell and wedged her door so we couldn't open it, and I grabbed a blanket one of the gals had rescued and plunged it into the rain barrel and run for Miss Margaret's room. There wasn't but one door in it which led into the main part of the cabin and was jammed like they said, and I knowed I couldn't never get my shoulders through either window, so I just put down my head and rammed the wall full force and knocked four or five logs out of place and made a hole big enough to go through. The room was so full of smoke I was nigh blinded, 
but I made out a figure fumbling at the window at the other side. A flaming beam fell out of the roof and broke across my head with a loud report, and about a bucket full of coals rolled down the back of my neck, but I paid no heed. I charged through the smoke, nearly fracturing my shin on a bedstead or something, and enveloped the figure in the wet blanket and swept it up into my arms. It kicked wildly and fought, and though its voice was muffled in the blanket, I catched some words I never would have thought Miss Margaret would use, but I figured she was hysterical. She seemed to be wearing spurs, too, because I felt them every time she kicked. By this time the room was a perfect blaze, and the roof was fallen in, and we'd both been roasted if I'd tried to get back to the hole I knocked in the opposite wall. So I lowered my head and butted my way through the near wall, getting all my eyebrows and hair burnt off in the process, and come staggering through the ruins with my precious burden and fell into the arms of my relatives, which was thronged outside. I've saved her, I panted. Pull off the blanket. You're safe, Miss Margaret. Ah, 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 said Miss Margaret, and Uncle Saul groped under the blanket and said, by golly, if this is the school teacher, she's scrowed a remarkable set of whiskers since I seen her last. He yanked off the blanket to reveal the bewhiskered countenance of Uncle Jeppard Grimes. Hell's fire, I bellered. What you doing here? I was coming to join the lynching, you blame fool, he snarled. I seen Bill's cabin was afire, so I clumb in through the back window to save Miss Margaret. She was gone, but there was a note she left. I was fixing to climb out the window when this maniac grabbed me. Give me that note, I bellered, grabbing it. Medina, come here and read it for me. That note run. Dear Breckenridge, I am sorry, but I can't stay on Bear Creek any longer. It was tough enough anyway, but being expected to marry you was the last straw. You've been very kind to me, but it would be too much like marrying a grizzly bear. Please forgive me. I am eloping with J. Pembroke Pemberton. We're going out the back window to avoid any trouble and ride away on his horse. Give my love to the children. We're going to Europe on our honeymoon. With love, Margaret Ashley. Now what you got to say, sneered Uncle Jeppard. I'm a victim of foreign entanglements, I said dazedly. I'm going to chaw Bill Glanton's ears off for saddling that critter on me. Then I'm going to lick me an Englishman if I have to go all the way to California to find one, which same is now my aim, object, and ambition. This Englishman took my girl and ruined my education and filled my neck and spine with burns and bruises. A uh, Elkins never forgets, and the next one that pokes his nose into the Bear Creek country had better be a fightin' fool or a powerful fast runner. End of War on Bear Creek The Feudbuster by Robert Howard this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Feudbuster by Robert Howard.
These here derned lies which is being circulated around is making me sick and tired. If this slander don't stop, I'm liable to lose my temper, and anybody in the Humboldts can tell you when I loses my temper, the effect on the population is worse than fire, earthquake, and cyclone. First off, it's a lie that I rode a hundred miles to mix into a feud which wasn't none of my business. I never heard of the Hopkins-Barlow War before I come in the Mesquital country. I hear tell the Barlows is talking about suing me for destroying their property. Well, they ought to build their cabin solider if they don't want them tore down. And they're all liars when they say the Hopkinses hired me to exterminate them at five dollars a scalp. I don't believe even the Hopkins would pay five dollars for one of their mangy scalps. Anyway, I don't fight for hire for nobody. And the Hopkinses needn't bellyache about me turning on them and trying to massacre the entire clan. All I wanted to do was kind of disable them so they couldn't interfere with my business. And my business, from first to last, was defending the family honor. If I had to wipe up the earth with a couple of feudin' clans whilst so doin', I can't help it. Folks which is particular of their hides ought to stay out of the way of tornadoes, wild bulls, devastatin' torrents, and an insulted elkins. But it was Uncle Jeopard Grimes' fall to begin with, like it generally is. Durn near all the calamities which takes place in southern Nevada can be traced back to that old lobo. He's got an ingrown disposition and a natural talent for pesterin' his feller man, especially his relatives. I was settin' in a saloon in war paint, enjoying a friendly game of cards with a horse thief and three train robbers, when Uncle Jeopard come in and spied me, and he come over and scowled down on me like I was the missing lynx or something. Pretty soon he says, just as I was all sought to make a killin', he says, How can you sit there so free and careless with four ace-cards in your hand when your family name is being besmirched? I flung down my hand in annoyance and said, Now look what you done. What you mean blattin' out information of such a private nature? What you talkin' about, anyhow? Well, he says, during the three months you've been away from home, roisterin' and wastin' your substance in riotous livin', I've been down on Wild River punchin' cows at thirty a month, I said fiercely. I ain't squandered nothin' nowheres. Shut up and tell me whatever you're a-talkin' about. Well, says he, whilst you've been gone, young Dick Jackson, a chawed ear, has been courtin' your sister Ellen and the family's been expectin' em to set the day, any time. But now I hear he's been bragging all over Chaudier about how he done jilted her. Are you gonna sit there and let your sister become the laughing stock of the country? When I was a young man, when you was a young man, Daniel Boone warn't welt yet, I bellered, so mad I included him and everybody else in my irritation. They ain't nothing upsets me like injustice done to some of my close kin. Get out of my way. 
I'm heading for chawed ear. What you grinning at, you spotted hyena? This last was addressed to the horse thief in which I seemed to detect signs of amusement. I weren't grinning, he said. So I'm a liar, I reckon, I said. I felt an impulse to shatter a demijohn over his head, which I done, and he fell under a table hollering bloody murder, and all the fellows drinking at the bar abandoned their liquor and stampeded for the street, hollering, Take cover, boys! Breckenridge Elkins is on the rampage! So I kicked all the slats out of the bar to relieve my feelings, and stormed out of the saloon and forked Captain Kidd. Even he seen it was no time to take liberties with me. He didn't pitch but seven jumps. Then he settled down to a dead run, and we headed for chawed ear. Everything kind of floated in a red haze all the way. But them folks which claims I tried to murder him in cold blood on the road between war paint and chawed ear is just narrow-minded and super-sensitive. The reason I shot everybody's hats off that I met was just to kind of calm my nerves, because I was afraid if I didn't cool off some by the time I hit chawed ear, I might hurt somebody. I am that mild-mannered and retiring by nature that I wouldn't willingly hurt man or beast nor injun unless maddened beyond endurance. That's why I acted with so much self-possession and dignity when I got to chawed ear and entered the saloon where Dick Jackson generally hung out. "'Where's Dick Jackson?' I said, and everybody must have been nervous, because when I boomed out, they all jumped and looked around, and the bartender dropped a glass and turned pale. "'Well,' I hollered, beginning to lose patience, "'where is the coyote?' G -g "'Give me time, will you?' stuttered the barkeep. "'I, uh, he, he, uh, so you evades the question, eh? I said, kicking the footrail loose. Friend of his'n, eh? Trying to protect him, eh? I was so overcome by this perfidy that I lunged for him, and he ducked down behind the bar, and I crashed onto it bodily with all my lunge and weight, and it collapsed on top of him, and all the customers run out of the saloon, hollering, Help! Murder! Elkins is killing the bartender! This feller stuck his head up from amongst the ruins of the bar and begged, For God's sake, let me alone. Jackson headed south for the Mescital Mountains yesterday. I throwed down the chair I was fixin' to bust all the ceiling lamps with and run out and jumped on Captain Kidd and headed south, whilst behind me folks emerged from their cyclone cellars and sent a rider up in the hills to tell the sheriff and his deputies they could come on back now. I knowed where the Mescatals was, though I hadn't ever been there. I crossed the California line about sundown, and shortly after dark I seen Mescatal Peak looming ahead of me. Having calmed down somewhat, I decided to stop and rest Captain Kidd. He weren't tired because that horse has got alligator blood in his veins, but I knowed I might have to trail Jackson clean to the angels and they weren't no use in running Captain Kidd's legs off on the first lap of the chase. It weren't a very thickly settled country I'd come into, very mountainous and thick-timbered, but pretty soon I come to a cabin beside the trail, and I pulled up and hollered, Hello! 
The candle inside was instantly blowed out, and somebody pushed a rifle barrel through the window and bawled, Who be you? I'm Breckenridge Elkins from Bear Creek, Nevada, I said. I'd like to stay all night and get some feed from a horse. Stand still, warned the voice. We can see you again, the stars, and they's four rifle guns a-kiverin' you. Well, make up your minds, I said, because I could hear em discussing me. I reckon they thought they was whispering. One of em said, Ah, oh, he can't be a Barlow. Ain't none of them that big. T'other said, Well, maybe he's a dern gunfighter they sent for to help em out. Old Jake's nephew's been up in Nevada. Let's let him in, I said a third. We can mighty quick tell what he is. So one of em come out and loud it would be all right for me to stay the night, and he showed me a corral to put Captain Kidd in and hauled out some hay for him. we got to be careful, he said. we got lots of enemies in these hills. We went into the cabin, and they lit the candle again and sot some corn pone and sow belly and beans on the table and a jug of corn liquor. They was four men, and they said their names was Hopkins, Jim, Bill, Joe and Joshua, and they was brothers. I'd always heard tell the Mescital country was famed for big men, but these fellows wasn't so big, not much over six foot high apiece. On Bear Creek they'd be considered kind of puny and undersized. They weren't very talkative. Mostly they sought with their rifles across their knees and looked at me without no expression onto their faces but that didn't stop me from eating a hearty supper and would have et a lot more only the grub give out. And I hoped they had more liquor somewheres else because I was pretty dry. When I turned up the jug to take a snort, it was brim full. But before I'd more than dampened my gullet, the darn thing was plumb empty. When I got through, I went over and sat down on a raw hide bottom chair in front of the fireplace where there was a small fire going though they weren't really no need for it, and they said, What's your business, stranger? Well, I said, not knowing I was going to get the surprise of my life, I'm looking for a feller named Dick Jackson. By golly, the words wasn't clean out of my mouth when they was four men onto my neck like catamounts. He's a spy, they hollered. He's a cussed Barlow. Shoot him, stab him, hit him in the head all of which they was endeavoring to do with such passion they was getting in each other's way, and it was only his over-eagerness that caused Jim to miss me with his buoy and sink it into the table instead. But Joshua busted a chair over my head, and Bill would have shot me if I hadn't jerked back my head, so he just singed my eyebrows. This lack of hospitality so irritated me that I riz up amongst them like a bar with a pack of wolves hanging on to him, and commenced committing mayhem on my hosts, cause I seen right off they was critters which couldn't be persuaded to respect a guest no other way. Well, the dust of battle hadn't settled. The casualties was groaning all over the place, and I was just relighting the candle when I heard a horse galloping down the trail from the south. I wheeled and drawed my guns as it stopped before the cabin, but I didn't shoot, because the next instant 
they was a barefoot gal standin' in the door. When she seen the ruins, she let out a screech like a catamount. You killed em, she screamed. You murderer. Aw, oh, I ain't neither, she said. They ain't hurt much, just a few cracked ribs and dislocated shoulders and busted legs and such like trifles. Joshua's ear'll grow back on all right if you take a few stitches into it. You cussed Barlow, she squalled, jumping up and down with the hystericals. I'll kill you, you damn Barlow. I ain't no Barlow, I said. I'm Breckenridge Elkins of Bear Creek. I ain't never even heard of no Barlows. At that, Jim stopped his groaning long enough to snarl. If you ain't a friend of the Barlows, how come you asking for Dick Jackson? He's one of them. He jilted my sister, I roared. I aimed to drag him back and make him marry her. Well, it was all a mistake, groaned Jim. But the damage is done now. It's worse you think, said the gal fiercely. The Hopkinses have all forted theirselves over at Pap's cabin, and they sent me to get you all. We got to make a stand. The Barlows is gathering over to Jake Barlow's cabin, and they aims to make a foray onto us tonight. We was outnumbered to begin with, and now here's our best fighting men laid out. Our gooses cooked plumb to hell. Lift me on my horse, moaned Jim. I can't walk, but I can still shoot. He tried to rise and fell back, cussing and groaning. You got to help us, said the gal desperately, turning to me. You done laid out our four best fighting men, and you owes it to us. It's your duty. Anyway, you says Dick Jackson's your enemy. Well, he's Jake Barlow's nephew, and he come back here to help him clean out us Hopkinses. He's over at Jake's cabin right now. My brother Bill snuck over and spied on him, and he says every fighting man of the clan is gathering there. All we can do is hold the fort, and you've got to come help us hold it. You're nigh as big as all four of these boys put together. Well, I figured I owed the Hopkinses something. So after setting some bones and bandaging some wounds and abrasions, of which there was a goodly lot, I saddled Captain Kidd, and we sought out. As we rode along, she said, That there is the biggest, wildest, meanest-looking critter I ever seen. Where'd you get him? He was a wild horse, I said. I catched him up in the Humboldts. Nobody ever rode him but me. He's the only horse west of the Pecos big enough to carry my weight, and he's got painter's blood and a shark's disposition. What's this here feud about? I don't know, she said. It's been going on so long everybody's done forgot what started it. Somebody accused somebody else of stealing a cow, I think. What's the difference? They ain't none, I assured her. If folks wants to have feuds, it's their own business. We was following a winding path, and pretty soon we heard dogs barking, and about that time the gal turned aside and got off her horse and showed me a pen hid in the brush. It was full of horses. We keep our mounts here so's the Barlows ain't so likely to find em and run em off, she said, and she turned her horse into the pen, and I put Captain Kidd in but tied him over in one corner by himself. Otherwise he would have started fighting all the other horses and kicked the fence down. Then we went on along the path, and the dogs barked louder, and 
Pretty soon we come to a big two-story cabin which had heavy board shutters over all the windows. There was just a dim streak of candlelight come through the cracks. It was dark because the moon hadn't come up. We stopped in the shadow of the trees, and the gal whispered like a whippoorwill three times, and somebody answered from up on the roof. A door opened a crack in the room, which didn't have no light at all, and somebody said, Matt you, Elizabeth? Are the boys with you? It's me, says she, starting toward the door, but the boys ain't with me. Then all at once he throwed open the door and hollered, Run, gal! They's a grizzly bar standin' up on his hind legs right behind you. Oh, that ain't no bar, says she. That there's Breckenridge Elkins from up in Nevada. He's gonna help us fight the Barlows. We went on into a room where they was a candle on the table, and they was nine or ten men there and thirty-odd women and children. They all looked kind of pale and scared, and the men was loaded down with pistols and winchesters. They all looked at me kind of dumb-like, and the old man kept staring like he weren't any too sure he hadn't let a grizzly in the house after all. He mumbled something about making a natural mistake in the dark and turned to the gal. "'Where's the boys I sent you after?' he demanded, and she says, "'This gent must em up so's they ain't fitting for to fight. Now don't get rambunctious, pap.' It were just a honest mistake all round. He's our friend, and he's gunning for Dick Jackson. Ha! Dick Jackson, snarled one of the men, lifting his Winchester. Just let me get my sights on him. I'll cook his goose. You won't neither, I said. He's got to go back to Bear Creek and marry my sister Ellen. Well, I says, what's the campaign? I don't figure they'll get here till well after midnight, said old man Hopkins. All we can do is wait for em. You mean you all sets here and waits till they comes and lays siege, I says? What else, says he? Listen here, young man, don't start telling me how to conduct a feud. I growed up in this hearing. It were in full swing when I was born and I done spent my whole life carrying it on. That's just it, I snorted. You lets these dern wars drag on for generations. Up in the Humboldts we bring such things to a quick conclusion. Mighty near everybody up there come from Texas, original, and we fights our feuds Texas style, which is short and sweet. A feud which lasts ten years in Texas is a humdinger, we winds em up quick and in style. Where at is this here cabin where the Barlows is gathering? About three miles over the ridge, says a young fellow they call Bill. How many is they? I asked. I counted seventeen, says he. Just a fair-sized mouthful for a Elkins, I said. Bill, you guide me to that there cabin. The rest of you can come or stay. It don't make no difference to me. Well, they started jawing with each other then. Some was for going and some for staying. Some wanted to go with me and try to take the Barlows by surprise, but the others said it couldn't be done. They'd get ambushed themselves, and the only sensible thing to be did was to stay forted and wait for the Barlows to come. They'd given me no more heed, just sought there and augured. 
But that was all right with me, right in the middle of the dispute when it looked like maybe the Hopkinses would get to fighting amongst themselves and finish each other before the Barlows could get there. I lit out with the boy Bill, which seemed to have considerable sense for a Hopkins. He got him a horse out of the hidden corral, and I got Captain Kidd, which was a good thing. He'd somehow got a mule by the neck, and the critter was almost at its last gasp when I rescued it. Then me and Bill lit out. We followed winding paths over thick-tempered mountainsides, till at last we come to a clearin', and they was a cabin there, with light and profanity pouring out of the winders. We'd been here in the last mansion for half a mile before we sighted the cabin. We left our horses back in the woods ways and snuck up on foot and stopped amongst the trees back of the cabin. They're in there tanking up on corn liquor to whet their appetites for Hopkins' blood, whispered Bill, all in a shiver. Listen to em. Them fellows ain't hardly human. What you gonna do? They got a man standing guard out in front of the door at the other end of the cabin. You see, they ain't no doors or windows at the back. These windows on each side, but if we try to rush it from the front or either side, they'll see us and fill us full of lead before we can get a shot. Look, the moon's coming up. They'll be starting on their raid before long. I'll admit that cabin looked like it was going to be harder to storm than I'd figured. I hadn't had no idea in mind when I sought out for the place. All I wanted was to get in amongst them, Barlow's. I does my best fighting at close quarters. But at the moment I couldn't think of no way that wouldn't get me shot up. Of course, I could just rush the cabin, but the thought of seventeen Winchesters blazing away at me from close range was a little stiff even for me, though I was game to try it if they weren't no other way. Whilst I was studying over the matter, all to once the horses tied out in front of the cabin snorted, and back up in the hills something went and an I.D. hit me. Get back in the woods and wait for me, I told Bill, as I headed for the thicket where we'd left the horses. I mounted and rode up in the hills toward where the howl had come from. Pretty soon I lit and throwed Captain Kidd's reins over his head and walked on into the deep brush, from time to time giving a long squall like a cougar. They ain't a catamount in the world, can tell the difference when a Bear Creek man imitates one. After a while, one answered, from a ledge just a few hundred feet away. I went to the ledge and clumb up on it. There was a small cave behind it and a big mountain lion in there. He gave a grunt of surprise when he seen I was a human and made a swipe at me, but I gave him a bat on the head with my fist, and whilst he was still dizzy, I grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and hauled him out of the cave and lugged him down to where I left my horse. Captain Kidd snorted at the sight of the cougar and wanted to kick his brains out, but I give him a good kick in the stomach himself, which is the only kind of reasoning Captain Kidd understands, and got on him and headed for the Barlow hangout. I can think of a lot more pleasant jobs than toting a full-growed mountain lion down a thick-timbered mountainside on the back of an iron-jaw outlaw at midnight. I had the cat by the back of the neck with one hand, so hard he couldn't squall, and I held him out at arm's length as far from the horse as I could. But every now and then he'd twist around so he could claw Captain Kidd with his hind legs, and when this would happen, Captain Kidd would squall with rage and start bucking all over the place. Sometimes he would buck the dern cougar on to me, and pulling him loose from my hide was worse than pulling cucklebers out of a cow's tail. 
but presently I arrived close behind the cabin. I whistled like a whippoorwill for Bill, but he didn't answer, and weren't nowheres to be seen, so I decided he got scared and pulled out for home. But that was all right with me. I'd come to fight the Barlows, and I aimed to fight them, with or without assistance. Bill would just have been in the way. I got off in the trees back of the cabin and throwed the reins over Captain Kidd's head and went up to the back of the cabin on foot, walking soft and easy. The moon was well up by now, and what wind they was was blowing toward me, which pleased me because I didn't want the horses tied out in front to scent the cat and start cutting up before I was ready. The fellers inside was still cussing and talking loud as I approached one of the winders on the side, and one hollered out, Come on, let's get started. I craves Hopkins gore. And about that time I give the cougar a heave and throwed him through the winder. He let out an awful squall as he hit, and the fellers in the cabin hollered louder than he did. Instantly a most awful bustle broke loose in there, and of all the whooping and bellering and shooting I ever heard, and the lion squalling amongst it all, and clothes and hides tearing so you could hear it all over the clearing, and the horses busting loose and tearing out through the brush. As soon as I hove the cat, I run around to the door, and a man was standing there with his mouth open, too surprised at the racket to do anything. So I takes his rifle away from him and broke the stock off on his head and stood there at the door with the barrel, intending to brain them Barlows as they run out. I was plumb certain they would run out, because I have noticed the average man is funny that way, and hates to be shut up in a cabin with a mad cougar, as bad as a cougar would hate to be shut up in a cabin with an infuriated settler of Bear Creek. But them scoundrels fooled me. Appears like they had a secret door in the back wall and whilst I was waiting for them to storm out through the front door and get their skulls cracked, they knocked the secret door open and went piling out that way. By the time I realized what was happening and run around to the other end of the cabin, they was all out and streaking for the trees, yelling blue murder, with their clothes all tore to shreds and them bleeding like stuck hogs. That there catamount sure improved the shining hours whilst he was corralled with them Barlows, he come out after him with his mouth full of the seats of men's breeches, and when he seen me, he gave a kind of despairing yelp and taken out up the mountain with his tail twixt his legs like the devil was after him with a red-hot branding iron. I'd taken after the Barlows, sought on scuttling at least a few of them, and I was on the point of letting bam at em with my six-shooters as they run, when just as they reached the trees, all the Hopkins men riz out of the brush and fell on em with piercing howls. That fray was kind of peculiar. I don't remember a single shot being fired. The Barlows had dropped their guns in their flight, and the Hopkinses seemed bent on whipping out their wrongs with their bare hands and gun butts. For a few seconds they was a hell of a scramble, men cussing and howling and bellering, and rifle stocks cracking over heads and the brash crashing underfoot, then before I could get into it, the Barlows broke every which way and took out through the woods like jackrabbits squalling judgment day. Old man Hopkins come prancing out of the brash, waving his Winchester and his beard flying in the moonlight, and he hollered, 
The sins of the wicked shall return on to them. Elkins, we have hit a powerful lick for righteousness this here night. Where'd you all come from, I asked. I thought you was still back in your cabin chewing the rag. Well, he says, after you pulled out, we decided to trail along and see how you come out with whatever you planned. As we come through the woods expecting to get ambushed every second, we met Bill here who told us he believed you had an ID for circumventing them devils, though he didn't know what it was. So we come on and hid ourselves at the edge of the trees to see what had happened. I see we've been too timid in our dealings with these heathens. We've been letting them force the fighting too long. You was right. A good offense is the best defense. We didn't kill any of the varmints, was luck, he said, but we give em a prime lickin'. Hey, look there. The boys has caught one of the critters. Take him into that cabin, boys. They lugged him into the cabin, and by the time me and the old man got there, they had the candles lit and a rope around the Barlow's neck and one end throwed over a rafter. That cabin was a sight, all littered with broke guns and splintered chairs and tables, pieces of clothes and strips of hide. It looked just about like a cabin ought to look, where there had just been a fight between seventeen polecats and a mountain lion. It was a dirt floor, and some of the poles which helped hold up the roof was splintered, so most of the weight was resting on a big post in the center of the hut. All the Hopkinses was crowding around their prisoner, and when I looked over their shoulders and seen the feller's pale face in the light of the candle, I give a yell. Dick Jackson! So it is, said old man Hopkins, rubbing his hands with glee. So it is. Well, young feller, you got any last words to orate? Nah, said Jackson sullenly. But if it hadn't been for that derned lion spilin' our plans, we'd have had you Dane Hopkinses like so much pork. I never heard of a cougar jumpin' through a winder before. That there cougar didn't jump, I said, shoulderin' through the mob. He was hev. I'd done the heaven. His mouth fell open and he looked at me like he'd saw the ghost of sittin' bull. Breckenridge Elkins, says he. I'm cooked now for sure. I'll say you air, gritted the fellow who'd spoke a shootin' Jackson earlier in the night. What are we waitin' for? Let's string him up. The rest started howlin'. Hold on, I said. You all can't hang him. I'm gonna take him back to Bear Creek. You ain't neither, said old man Hopkins. We're much obliged to you for the help you give us tonight, but... This here's the first chance we've had to hang a Barlow in fifteen year, and we plan to make the most of it. String him, boys. Stop, I roared, stepping forward. In a second I was covered by seven rifles, whilst three men laid hold of the rope and started to heave Jackson's feet off the floor. Them seven Winchesters didn't stop me. But for one thing I'd have taken them guns away and wiped up the floor with them ungrateful mavericks but I was afeard Jackson would get hit in the wild shooting that was certain to follow such a plan of action. What I wanted to do was something which would put em all horse de combat, as the French say, without killing Jackson. 
so I laid hold of the center post, and before they knowed what I was doing, I tore it loose and broke it off, and the roof caved in, and the walls fell inwards on the roof. In a second, they wasn't no cabin at all, just a pile of lumber with the Hopkinses all underneath and screaming blue murder. Of course, I just braced my legs, and when the roof fell, my head busted a hole through it, and the logs of the fallen walls hit my shoulders and glanced off. So when the dust settled, I was standing waist-deep amongst the ruins, and nothing but a few scratches to show for it. The howls that riz from beneath the ruins was blood-curdling. But I knowed nobody was hurt permanent, because if they was, they wouldn't be able to howl like that. But I expect some of them would have been hurt if my head and shoulders hadn't kind of broke the fall of the roof and the wall logs. I located Jackson by his voice, and pulled pieces of roof board and logs off until I come to his leg, and I pulled him out by it and laid him on the ground to get his wind back, because a beam had fell across his stomach, and when he tried to holler, he made the funniest noise I ever heard. I've been kind of rooted around amongst the debris and hauled old man Hopkins out, and he seemed kind of dazed and kept talking about earthquakes. You better get to work extricating your misguided kin from under them logs, you hoary-haired old sarpent, I told him sternly. After that there display of ingratitude, I got no sympathy for you. In fact, if I was a short-tempered man, I'd feel inclined to violence. But being the soul of kindness and generosity, I controls my emotions and merely remarks that if I wasn't mild-mannered as a lamb, I'd hand you a boot in the pants like this. I kicked him gentle. Ow! says he, sailing through the air and sticking his nose to the hilt in the dirt. I'll have the law on you, you darn murderer! He wept, shaking his fists at me, and as I departed with my captive, I could hear him chanting a hymn of hate as he pulled chunks of logs off his bellerin relatives. Jackson was trying to say something, but I told him I weren't in no mood for perlite conversation, and the less he said, the less likely I was to lose my temper and tie his neck into a knot around a blackjack. Captain Kidd made the hundred miles from the Mesquital Mountains to Bear Creek by noon the next day, carrying double, and never stopping to eat, sleep, nor drink. Them that don't believe that kindly keep their mouths shut. I have already licked nineteen men for acting like they didn't believe it. I stalked into the cabin and throwed Dick Jackson down on the floor before Ellen, which looked at him and me like she thought I was crazy. What you finds attractive about this coyote, I said bitterly, is beyond the grasp of my dust-coated brain. But here he is, and you can marry him right away. She said, Are you drunk or sunstruck? Marry that good-for-nothing, whiskey-swiggin', card-shootin' loafer? Why, ain't been a week since I run him out of the house with a buggy-whip. Then he didn't jilt you, I gasped. Him jilt me, I said. I jilted him. I turned to Dick Jackson more in sorrow than in anger. Why, said I, 
Did you boast all over Chaud ear about Jilton Ellen Elkins? I didn't want folks to know she turned me down, he said sulkily. Us Jacksons is proud. The only reason I ever thought about marrying her was I was ready to settle down on the farm Pap gave me, and I wanted to marry me an Elkins gal so I wouldn't have to go to the expense of hiring a couple of hands and buying a span of mules, and they ain't no use in Dick Jackson threatening to have the law on me. He got off light to what's he'd have got if Pap and my brothers hadn't all been off hunting. They've got terrible tempers. But I was always too soft-hearted for my own good. In spite of Dick Jackson's insults, I held my temper. I didn't do nothing to him at all, except escort him, in sorrow, for five or six miles down the chawed ear trail, kicking the seat of his britches. End of the Feud Buster Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.